I invite you to open your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, and we want to begin uh, this study in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we trust that the Lord will help us as we go through. 1 Corinthians is such an important book. It's, it's foundational in a lot of ways. There's so much doctrine, so much teaching, so many practical elements to what is taught in 1 Corinthians, and what we will find as we go through is that the church in Corinth that this letter was written to finds themselves in much the same situation that we find ourselves in today. And many of the things that plagued this church that Paul addresses in this letter, we find ourselves struggling with today. And so the teaching and the doctrine and the reproof that is found in the book of 1 Corinthians is so practical for us. And so I am very excited to begin um, this study. I hope that you are just as eager. If you've never read through uh, the 16 chapters in this letter, it doesn't take very long uh, to sit down and to read them, to get a good overview context of where we're going in the book of 1 Corinthians and all the things that it would have in store for us. But today, we want to simply uh, lay the groundwork and we, we probably won't get into uh, the verses in chapter 1 so much past um, verse 1. But we want to introduce this book and understand why it was written, to whom it was written, and the context that surrounded this letter in this church. And in doing so, we hope to lay the foundation for the rest of our studies and lessons in 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> So let's read, we'll read the first nine verses together, uh, beginning 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So far with the reading. And what we want to look at today, and I hope this works so you can take notes, is simply uh, two aspects of this introduction. First of all, introducing the details of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, as a book, was written by Paul, and we get that very clearly in verse 1. 1 Corinthians is one of four letters that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. And 1 Corinthians is actually the second letter that Paul writes to the church. And as we go through this book, he references 
another letter that he wrote to the church at Corinth. And then we have 1 Corinthians. And then he writes them a second or a third letter, and then he writes them 2 Corinthians. So there's four letters altogether, 1 Corinthians being the second letter that Paul has written to Corinth. So what about the city of Corinth? What about these saints that find themselves in Corinth? Corinth was a major, um, it was a major trade city. If you look at it on a map, it's interesting, it's location right there in the Mediterranean, and it was actually an isthmus, and it was actually um, to travel around that peninsula uh, that Greece found itself on was very treacherous in the sea. And we know Paul even writes of going through shipwrecks in that region. And so many travelers and many tradesmen would travel through Corinth and haul their supplies across the land. And so it was a very busy port city. It was very well visited by people and merchants from all over the place. And so when you were in Corinth, you had all this culture surrounding you. You had all these people surrounding you. It was a very large city. But it was also because of all the influences and different things, it was also full of immorality. It was full of idolatry. It was full of pagan ideology. And it was full of the culture of the world and the influences of the world were, were completely uh, filling up this city of Corinth. It was a, as, as one writer put it, it was the, you could say, the, the New York City or the Las Vegas of that day. It was the place that was filled with worldliness. Um, an interesting fact that will help some of the context of the book of 1 Corinthians when we get later on is that, um, and it goes with the note that this city was filled with idolatry, is that there was actually two major idol temples in the city of Corinth. One was set up on top of this high hill, and it was the temple to Venus. Venus was the god of love. And there were women who worked at that temple. And we can imagine what went on. In fact, we'll read about what went on there later on in the book. And then at the bottom of that hill, there was a temple to the god Apollos. And in, there were men who worked at that temple. And they took practice in some of the um, darkest sins of homosexuality. And we read about that later on in the book. And so to understand that the culture surrounding this church in Corinth was anything but godly. It was so corrupt, and it was so filled with immorality. Everywhere you turned, it just met you without even looking for it. The more I studied the background of the city of Corinth and the culture and the history of Corinth and everything that it involved, the more I began to realize that this church in Corinth has more in common with us than we think. Because the culture in the day of Corinth was so similar to the culture surrounding us today. You don't have to look for immorality. It will find you. Idolatry? And we might say, well, we don't we don't have idols, we don't have temples, we don't have these kind of things. But how many things take precedence in the hearts and in the minds of people that rob the place that is reserved or ought to be reserved for God? 
That's idolatry. When God doesn't have his place. When, and, and his place is the first place. And so if God does not have first place in one's life, then that individual is practicing idolatry. Read the Old Testament and understand how God views idolatry. He calls himself, in fact, a jealous God who is jealous for his people and he wants them to follow him with all of their heart. We sang that hymn this morning, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. That's exactly what the commitment of each of our hearts ought to be, but idolatry is all around us and the cares of this world call out to us to follow after them. We must make a decision in our own hearts and in our own minds not to fall prey to the culture around us. Number one in, idolatry, number one in immorality, but also in the, in the sin of idolatry. And then we have this idea of the ideology of the world. We have this idea of the Corinthians, and we'll get this later on as we go through, but they were blessed, and I think we read it, they were blessed in all speech and in all knowledge in verse 5. They were gifted people in Corinth. And a lot of that to do is, or has to do with the, the, the amount of culture and, and, and different people that would travel through Corinth. There was so much intellect there. But along with intellect, you get worldly philosophy and you get worldly ideology. And this had infiltrated the church in Corinth. And let me tell you, to approach or to try to live as a Christian coming from a natural or a carnal or a worldly background is going to cause nothing but problems. If we tried to live our Christian life from a worldly perspective, it causes nothing but, but problems in our own personal walk. And if we try to live in the church or in the body of Christ, governing ourselves with worldly ideology, it causes nothing but problems. And so this is the, the church at Corinth. But perhaps to get some history, not only of the culture, but history of the church, when the church was founded. Let's turn to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18, we find the first time that Paul visited Corinth, and it was during this first visit to Corinth that Paul plants the church in Corinth. <clears throat> Acts chapter 18, we'll read from verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens, which is about 40, 45 miles to the east of Corinth, and he went to Corinth. Then he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. He said, I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. 
And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius, Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Christians, many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you or harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And so he, Paul, stayed there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Just that far to get the history of how this church was planted. And we see when Paul came to Corinth, he was by himself. And this was after he just had this experience in in Athens. And after Paul and Silas were in Berea. and, And he's on his travels, but he comes to Corinth by himself looking looking for people to minister to, knowing that his calling was to minister the word. But he didn't come to a church. He came to a city that was engulfed in worldliness. And how does Paul approach this problem? Well, it says he found a Jew named Aquila and his wife Priscilla, and they, and this is a very influential couple in this meeting in Corinth, and we'll read about them later on. But together, they with Paul and three other people, the five of them begin this testimony in Corinth. And let me just pause from the, the study here, the introduction to Corinthians, and let's just take a lesson from this portion in Acts 18. What we learn, two things we learn. Number one is that there is not a requirement for many to be involved in order for there to be a testimony for God. That even in the darkest of cultures, even in the sinfulest, if that's a word, of cultures, there doesn't need to be many in order for there to be a testimony for God. But those he calls to himself are to follow him in complete devotion. The five people in Acts 18 would never have been a testimony to the rest of Corinth. And to the people who God says in in verse 10, he says, I have many in this city who are my people. And the five of them were given the ministry to preach the word and draw those people out of the city of Corinth to God. But they would never have been successful in their ministry had they come under the influence of the culture of Corinth. And we as Christians will never be successful in the ministry God has given to us if we come under the influence of this world. If we live and govern our lives according to the culture, the immorality, the idolatry, and the ideology of this world, our ministry will forever be compromised. And the testimony will never be what it ought to be and what God has called it to be. 
So there doesn't need to be many, but those who are part of that testimony need to be fully devoted, heart, soul, mind, complete being to the work of God. Set apart from the culture is the bottom line. And that's what we get when we come back to 1 Corinthians. The second lesson that we learn in this book of Acts, Acts 18, I'll just mention it briefly. Think about how Paul felt when he came to Corinth. Perhaps the questions that he had in his mind. Can you imagine? Paul the Apostle, in all that he had gone through, and all the, 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 the preaching and the souls that were saved and, and all the, the, the growth and the fruit that he had seen from his ministry already. All the blessing that God had given as a result of where this man was and, and how he was preaching for God. And now he comes to Corinth, a place where he doesn't know anyone, a place that is so overrun with worldliness, a place where there is no church. And he's there by himself until he finds Aquila and Priscilla. And let me tell you, sometimes we don't know why God has brought us to the place where we are. But we don't hear about Paul wondering or questioning the work and the will and the ways of God. We see that Paul is looking for those who believe the way he believes. And then we see later on that Paul is faithful to what God has given him to do. He says, I know that my ministry is to preach to the Gentiles. And so he goes on and he preaches the word. Sometimes we don't understand why we are where we are, but in fact, God has put us in the exact place, and we can make this very practical. Sometimes we don't understand why we are in Corona. Sometimes we don't understand why we come to meeting here. Sometimes we don't understand why we're part of this fellowship. But God has placed us in this exact place for a reason. He has given to us a ministry, and we are, we are tasked, we are given the work to be faithful. Our responsibility to the ministry he has given is simply to do what he's called us to do. And so whether that's part of the kids' work, the, the Good News Club, whether that's part of um, the, the young adults, maybe that's working behind the scenes, whatever it is, God has tasked us and given us a gift and we are to use it to edify the body. And that is another thing we come to in the book of 1 Corinthians. But what we see from Paul, and despite the, the wonderings, he was faithful. We might wonder why we're in the position personally where we're at in life. We might wonder why our state or our condition is what it is. We might wonder why we have to go through certain things in life. But remember the lesson God has placed us where he wants us, and he's able to use us if we're faithful to him. And so Paul meets Priscilla and Aquila. They gather three other people to them, and then we see this, this meeting, this fellowship, this testimony in Corinth, this church begins, and it says that he stayed there for 18 months. And I find this very interesting, that in the face of all this um, idolatry and immorality and pagan ideology, how does Paul confront that? Here's a lesson for us in our day and age. 
when, when political arguments would, would approach us from all sides and when you know, moral arguments would come at us and people ask us, well, what do you think about this and what do you think about that and how do we approach different things in society and how are we supposed to you know, walk on thin ice with this topic and still maintain our, our Christian beliefs? How does Paul approach the society of Corinth? It says he stayed there for 18 months and he preached the word of God to them. He taught it. He helped them to understand what the Bible says and what the Bible means. And if we don't understand what the Bible says and what the Bible means, then we are going to fall prey to the immorality, the idolatry, and the ideology of the culture around us. The Bible is so important. It's foundational in our testimony. And if we're not in it daily, if we're not reading it and absorbing it and allowing it to sink in and to transform our life, then we are easy targets for the enemy to attack. And we wonder why we struggle with so many different things in our own personal walk. We wonder why the testimony of Christ, the church, the local testimony has so many difficulties we wonder why we see other assemblies being divided and damaged by attacks of the enemy. It's because we have let our guard down by not taking up the word of God. And so this is the beginning of the church. The first 18 months Paul was there. Let's turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you've ever studied the book of 1 Corinthians or, or even briefly read the, the introduction in your Bible about the, the book of 1 Corinthians or perhaps you've, you've read a commentary or two on it, it is no secret that the church at Corinth had major, major issues. There's at least ten of them. To summarize, we begin later on in chapter 1, we talk about divisions, and it's divisions based upon spiritual leadership, with some people wanting to follow this guy and some people wanting to follow that guy. And who are we to follow? And we continue on, and we read about more divisions in the church, and then we continue on. And we read about sexual immorality in the church. And there was actually uh, three things about that topic that plagued that church. There was incest. There was adultery outside of marriage. And then there was the, the, the marriage itself. And we'll read about the relationships between, in chapter 7, uh, principles for marriage. But the marriage itself was being defiled because of what was going on outside of marriage. In chapter 6, we read that believers were taking other believers to court. And they were allowing the judges of this world to govern what happens within the body of Christ. 
the end of chapter 7, we read about people who are unmarried, who are having struggles, single people who are having struggles, and we read about widows who are having struggles. Chapter 8, we read about food that was offered to idols and how it was offending people to eat food. Remember, there was idols all over the city of Corinth. In chapter 9, we read about an issue of personal rights. Well, it's my right to do this, and I feel like it's my right, so you can't infringe upon my right. Chapter 11, we read about men and, and women's roles in the church, and specifically as it comes to the topic of head coverings. In chapter 11, we read that the Lord's Supper itself was being defiled because people were coming in to remember the Lord at the breaking of bread, and, but they wouldn't have complete fellowship with one another because they were saying when they came together, well, I don't want to sit by them. Maybe they sing too loud or they, they're off key, they're off note. Or I don't like them, I have personal issues with them. And so when they came together, they had this outward form of fellowship, but in their hearts, there was not unity there. And it defiled the Lord's Supper in chapter 11. And so what we get there is the commandment or the exhortation to not eat or drink in an unworthy manner. In chapter 12, we read about spiritual gifts and how they thought that if you had a certain gift, you were better off than this other Christian who had, as they would call it, a lesser gift. And so now we have to figure out, well, who has the better gift? Chapter 14 continues on. Chap the end of chapter 14, we see that their worship is all out of order, and Paul has to remind them that God is not a God of disorder. And in chapter 15, this wonderful chapter that we've often heard about, preached on, about the resurrection, it's here in our Bibles in, in 1 Corinthians because the church at 1 Corinthians had doubts and questions about whether or not the bodies of believers would be resurrected. And so Paul has to remind them to teach them again concerning these things. And so it goes without saying that the church at Corinth was riddled with major issues that most of us would just say, you know what, I don't want to deal with that. I'm going to go over here. Or let's just not talk about that. Let's deal with something else. I like to refer to some of these hard-to-handle issues as things that give us spiritual squeamish stomachs. It makes us a little uneasy. It makes us, you know, readjust ourselves in our chair, kind of shift our weight, because we don't understand or know exactly what to say or how to handle these things, let alone when they come into the church it wasn't that Paul was dealing with the things in Corinth. He was dealing with the things in the church at Corinth. But Paul gives us an amazing example. And I want to finish with these three headings. When we look at the theme of 1 Corinthians... 
we learn that the theme of 1 Corinthians is that the gospel requires for God's holy people to mature in purity and unity. And I want to look at that statement in three parts. The gospel call. When we begin the book of 1 Corinthians, remember, Paul knows what is going on. He's already written a letter to them, and it's been misunderstood and misinterpreted, and it's caused more issues than what he meant for it to cause. He actually meant for it to help the issues. So Paul knows exactly what is going on. It's been reported to him, as we'll read later on in chapter 1. But Paul approaches the issues in Corinth by presenting the gospel to them. And we read that the word for gospel in the book of Corinthians is mentioned eight times. And the word for to proclaim the gospel is mentioned six times. And that it's actually alluded to many, many more times than that. As we'll read even in chapter 1, Christ crucified is brought out, clearly presenting the gospel to them. But if there is ever a solution to the problems that we face, it lies within the gospel. We must be people, Christians, believers, who understand and are absorbed, filled from head to foot with the gospel. When we open our mouth, it ought to be what comes out. When people ask us, what is your opinion on such and such? What is your view on such and such? Where do you stand concerning this? When sin and issues come into the church, our response should come out of the gospel. It's the only thing that will solve what plagues us. But not only is the gospel a calling in 1 Corinthians, but we see in the scope of 1 Corinthians, and I found this, as I read through this book again, I found this to be um, precious. At the beginning of 1 Corinthians, scan this page with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and look at just verse 17, verse 18. He talks about the cross of Christ. We preach Christ crucified, verse 23. And he reminds us that it begins at the cross. He reminds us that if it wasn't for the cross of Christ, that we would be miserable. Because if Christ hadn't died for our sins, then we would still be dead in our sins. But what he says in chapter 1 is that the cross of Christ is filled with power. And I don't come to you preaching and in eloquent terms and with many words, because if I did that, then the cross would be emptied of its power. You need to understand the power that lies within the cross of Christ, and you need to be absorbed and, and committed to the salvation that lies and begins with the cross. The cross is the center of it all, and that's where it begins. But then fast forward to the end of the chapter, and I already mentioned Chapter 15, that marvelous chapter on the resurrection, he takes us from the cross and he reminds us that there is coming a day when every single blood-bought believer will be raised to glory. This is the completion 
of the work of sanctification, when we will be resurrected. And what lies within the book of 1 Corinthians is what lies within that, that, that gap between the cross and glory. How do we live in between the point of salvation and that moment when we are ushered into God's presence? That's what the book of 1 Corinthians deals with, and it approaches it from a gospel perspective, and it applies the gospel to every area of our life in between the cross and glory. And it ends with that wonderful portion in chapter 15, which reminds us of the victory that is ours in Christ. Death has no sting. It has no hold on us because Christ has won the victory. And that is how Paul approaches the issues in 1 Corinthians. With the gospel in mind, with the victory that lies in the future on his mind, and he would remind the saints in Corinth that to everything that plagues you, that causes you issues, that is dividing your church, and that is corrupting the testimony, he says, drown it in the gospel. The gospel requires God's holy people to mature in purity and unity. And what do we get when we read about God's holy people? Look at those verses that we read to the church of God. This is verse 2. That is in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It almost seems like when Paul begins this letter, he doesn't know who he's writing to. But in fact, he does. And despite their sin and their sinfulness, despite their worldliness and their appetite for the things of this world, he reminds them that they are saints. This does not mean that they are sinless, but it does mean that in God's eyes they are saints. Remember Ephesians we are seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is our position. But every Christian is called upon to practically exercise what they hold positionally. If we believe that we are seated in Christ, we are called upon by God to live it out. It doesn't happen overnight. It's called the process of progressive sanctification. It's the process by which we are changed into the image of Christ. And that is what the book of 1 Corinthians deals with. It deals with Christians who are failing to change, to transform into the image of Christ. And how easy it is when once first saved to have a deep burning desire to transform everything about my life into the image of Christ, but then as the years go on and the days go on, the desire wanes, and my life becomes more and more closely resembling the world around me instead of the Christ to whom I have fled to for salvation. 
Sanctification is the process by which we are changed into the image of Christ. And maturity, maturity in Christian living is a must. Maturity is a must. We cannot remain spiritual babies, babes as Peter calls them, our entire life. There is, a, there is a phase where that is appropriate, but there is also natural progression and natural maturity that is expected and that ought to be seen in our life. We ought not to be at the same stage that we were at the beginning of last year in spiritual things. We need to grow. Maturity is a must. The gospel requires God's holy people to mature in purity and unity. And I would suggest, and it's often debated which one the, the book of 1 Corinthians deals with. Is it purity or is it unity? And they go back and forth. And some people think it leans more to purity and others feel it leans more to unity. But I would say that it is a blend of the two. Because what purity is, is purity is the separation from the things without. It's a separation from the culture. It's a separation from the influence of evil in the world. It's a separation from the immorality and the idolatry and the ideology that surrounds us as Christians. But unity is the other side of that coin that separates us to Christ. And in Christ, we all, every blood-bought believer from, from time when time began to the end of time, is united together in Christ. And these are the two things that Paul preaches in the book of 1 Corinthians. It's attacks from both sides. It's attacks from outside. It's attacks from inside. And the question is not which one first. The question really ought to be, how do we apply the gospel to our purity as Christians in this world? How do we apply the gospel to our unity as Christians in this world? And if I may just give us a sneak peek, flip over. Chapter 13 is perhaps both of these things combined into one. When we understand the context and the theme of 1 Corinthians, and we come to a chapter such as 1 Corinthians 13, where it talks exhaustively about love, we come to realize that the center of it is, if we are to remain pure from the influences of this world, we must have a love for Christ. And by developing our desire for Christ, we, as we sung again this morning, I have decided to follow Jesus. He says, he goes on to say in that hymn, the world behind me, the cross before me. As Christians, what do we love? What is our desire? What are we hungering for? That's how it pertains to purity. But then the love is the greatest expression of who Christ is to those around us. And if there is to be true unity within the body of Christ, it comes out of a genuine spirit of love that only can come from Christ reigning within my heart. And so this is the book of 1 Corinthians. This is the introduction to the book of 1 Corinthians. There's so much within these pages for us to apply to our own life. And as we study, 
my prayer for my own heart is that my heart would be open to what God would speak to me. Because the gospel requires God's holy people to mature in purity and unity. Let's close in prayer. Our God and our Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for this letter that you have recorded for us, written by Paul to the Corinthians, but certainly applicable to each one of our own lives and to this testimony here in Corona. And we pray that as we study and as we dig into your word and as we learn from it, that you would teach us the things that we do not know, that you would help us to grow in our faith and in our walk with you, that we would deny the world around us, that the things that would take up the space within our hearts would be removed so that you might fill us, that your love and your grace might overflow to the others in this assembly here, but also to the world around us, that Christ might be exalted and his name be lifted high. We thank you again for what you have given to us this morning, and it's in the name of the Lord Jesus that we ask these things. Amen.